Chapter Two of the Big Time by Fritz Leiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter Two. Last week in Babylon, last night in Rome. Hodgson. A right hand glove. Beau had gone behind the bar and was talking quietly at dark, but with his eyes elsewhere, looking very sallow and professional in his white, and I thought, damn Bala, I'm in the French quarter. I couldn't see the new girl. Sid was at last getting to the new boy after the fuss about Mark. He threw me a sign and I started over with Eric in tow. Welcome, sweet lad. Sidney Lessingham's your host, and a fellow Englishman. Born in King's Lynn, 1564, schooled at Cambridge, but London was the life and death of me, though I outlasted Bessie, Jimmy, Charlie, and Ollie almost. And what a life! By turns a clerk, a spy, a board, the two trades are hand in glove, a poet of no account, a beggar, and a peddler of resurrection tracts. Beau Lassiter, our throats are tinder. At the word poet, the new boy looked up, but resentfully, as if he had been tricked into it. "'And to spare your throat for drinking, sweet gallant, I'll be so bold as to guess and answer one of your questions,' Sid rattled on. "'Yes, I knew Will Shakespeare. We were of an age, and he was such a modest, mind-your-business rogue, that we all wondered whether he really did write those plays. Your pardon, Faith, but that scratch might be looked to.' Then I saw that the new girl hadn't lost her head, but gone to surgery—ugh!—for a first-aid tray. She reached a swab toward the new boy's sticky cheek, saying rather shrilly, "'If I might—' Her timing was bad. Sid's last words and Eric's approach had darkened the look in the young soldier's face, and he angrily swept her arm aside without even glancing at her. Eric squeezed my arm. The tray clattered to the floor, and one of the drinks that Beau was bringing almost followed it. Ever since the new girl's arrival, Beau had been figuring that she was his responsibility, though I don't think the two of them had reached an agreement yet. Beau was especially set on it because I was thick with Sid at the time, and Maud with Doc, she loving tough cases. "'Easy now, lad, and you love me,' Sid thundered, again shooting Beau the hold it look. "'She's just a poor pagan trying to comfort you. Swallow your bile, you black villain, and perchance it will turn to poetry.' "'Ah, did I touch you there?' Confess, you are a poet." There isn't much gets by Sid, though for a second I forgot my psychology, and wondered if he knew what he was doing with his insights. "'Yes, I'm a poet, all right,' the new boy roared. "'I'm Bruce Marchant, you bloody zombies. I'm a poet in a world where even the lines of the King James and your precious Will, whom you use for laughs, aren't safe from snake slime and the spider's dirty legs. Changing our history, stealing our certainties, claiming to be so blasted, all-knowing, and best-intentioned, and efficient. And what does it lead to? This bloody S.I. glove!" He held up his black-gloved left hand, which still held the mate, and he shook it. "'What's wrong with the spider-issue gauntlet, Heart of Gold?' Sid demanded. "'And you love us, tell us.' While Eric laughed, "'Consider yourself lucky, camarade. Mark and I didn't draw any gloves at all.' "'What's wrong with it?' Bruce yelled. The bloody things are both lefts! He slammed it down on the floor. We all howled. We couldn't help it. He turned his back on us and stamped off, though I guessed he would keep out of the void. Eric squeezed my arm and said between gasps, Mein God, Liebchen, what have I always told you about soldiers? So big as a gripe, so small as a cause. It is infallible. One of us didn't laugh. Ever since the new girl heard the name Bruce Marchand, she'd had a look in her eyes, like she'd been given the sacrament. 
I was glad she'd got interested in something, because she'd been pretty much of a snoot and a wet blanket up until now, although she'd come to the place with the recommendation of having been a real whoopee girl in London and New York in the twenties. She looked disapprovingly at us as she gathered up the tray and stuff, not forgetting the glove, which she placed on the center of the tray like a holy relic. Beau cut over and tried to talk to her, but she ghosted past him, and once again he couldn't do anything because of the tray in his hands. He came over and got rid of the drinks quick. I took a big gulp right away, because I saw the new girl stepping through the screen into surgery, and I hate to be reminded we have it, and I'm glad Doc is too drunk to use it, some of the arachnoid surgical techniques being very sickening, as I know only too well from a personal experience that is number one on my list of things to be forgotten. By that time Bruce had come back to us, saying in a carefully hard voice, "'Look here. It's not the dashed glove itself, as you very well know, you howling demons.' "'What is it then, noble heart?' Sid asked, his grizzled gold beard heightening the effect of innocent receptivity. "'It's the principle of the thing,' Bruce said, looking around sharply, but none of us cracked a smile. "'It's this mucking inefficiency and death of the cosmos, and don't tell me that isn't in the cards.' masquerading as benign omniscient authority, the spiders, and we don't know who they are ultimately, it's just a name. We see only agents like ourselves. The spiders pluck us from the quiet graves of our lifelines. Is that bad, lad? Sid murmured, innocently straight-faced. And resurrect us if they can, and then tell us we must fight another time-travelling power called the snakes, just a name, too, which is bent on perverting and enslaving the whole cosmos, past, present, and future and isn't it, lad? Before we're properly awake, we're recruited into the big time, and hustled into tunnels and burrows outside our space-time, these miserable closets, grey sacks, pus-pockets—no offence to this place—that the spiders have created, maybe by gigantic implosions, but no one knows for certain, and then we're sent off on all sorts of missions into the past and future to change history in ways that are supposed to thwart the snakes. True, lad. And from then on, the pace is so flaming hot and heavy, the shocks come so fast, our emotions are wrenched in so many directions, our public and private metaphysics distorted so insanely, the deepest thread of reality we cling to tied in such bloody knots, that we can never get things straight." "'We've all felt that way, lad,' Sid said soberly. Beau nodded his sleek death's head. "'You should have seen me, camarade, my first fifty sleeps,' Eric put in, while I added, us girls, too, Bruce. Oh, I know I'll get hardened to it, and don't think I can't. It's not that," Bruce said harshly. And I wouldn't mind the personal confusion, the mess it's made of my spirit. I wouldn't even mind remaking history and destroying priceless, once-called imperishable beauties of the past, if I felt it were for the best. The spiders assure us that to thwart the snakes it is all-important that the West ultimately defeat the East. But what have they done to achieve this? I'll give you some beautiful examples. To stabilize power in the early Mediterranean world, they have built up Crete at the expense of Greece, making Athens a ghost city, Plato a trivial fabulist, and putting all Greek culture in a minor key." "'You got time for culture?' I heard myself say, and I clapped my hand over my mouth in gentle reproof. "'But you remember the dialogues, lad,' Sid observed, "'and rail not at Crete. I have a sweet Keftian friend. For how long will I remember Plato's dialogues? And who after me?" Bruce challenged. Here's another. The spiders want Rome powerful, 
and to date they have helped Rome so much that she collapses in a blaze of German and Parthian invasions a few years after the death of Julius Caesar. This time it was Beau who butted in. Most everybody in the place loves these bull sessions. You omit to mention, sir, that Rome's newest downfall is directly due to the unholy triple alliance the snakes have fomented between the Eastern classical world, Mohammedanized Christianity, and Marxist communism, trying to pass the torch of power futurewards by way of Byzantium and the Eastern Church, without ever letting it pass into the hands of the spider West. That, sir, is the snake's three-thousand-year plan which we are fighting against, striving to revive Rome's glories." "'Striving is the word for it,' Bruce snapped. Here's yet another example. To beat Russia, the spiders kept England and America out of World War II, thereby ensuring a German invasion of the New World, and creating a Nazi empire stretching from the salt-mines of Siberia to the plantations of Iowa, from Nizhny Novgorod to Kansas City." He stopped, and my short hairs prickled. Behind me someone was chanting in a weird, spiritless voice, like footsteps in hard snow. "'Salz! Salz! Bringe Salz! Kein peitsch, gnädige Herren! Salz! Salz! Salz!' I turned, and there was Doc waltzing toward us with tiny little steps, bent over so low that the ends of his shawl touched the floor, his head crooked up sideways and looking through us. I knew then, but Eric translated softly. Salt, salt, I bring salt, no vip, merciful sirs. He is speaking to my countrymen in their language. Doc had spent his last months in a Nazi-operated salt-mine. He saw us and got up, straightening his top-hat very carefully. He frowned hard while my heart thumped half a dozen times. Then his face slackened. He shrugged his shoulders and muttered, Michel. And it does not matter, sir, Beau translated, but directing his remark at Bruce. True. Great civilizations have been dwarfed or broken by the change war, but others, once crushed in the bud, have bloomed. In the 1870s I travelled a Mississippi that had never known Grant's gunboats. I studied piano, languages, and the laws of chance, under the greatest European masters at the University of Vicksburg. And you think your pipsqueak steamboat culture is compensation for— Bruce began, but— Prithee, none of that, lad," Sid interrupted smartly. "'Nations are as equal as so many madmen or drunkards, and I'll drink dead drunk the man who disputes me. Hear reason. Nations are not so puny as to shrivel and vanish at the first tampering with their past. No, nor with the tenth. Nations are monsters, boy, with guts of iron and nerves of brass. Waste not your pity on them.' "'True indeed, sir,' Beau pressed, cooler and keener for the attack on his greater south. Most of us enter the change war with the false metaphysic that the slightest change in the past, a grain of dust misplaced, will transform the whole future. It is a long while before we accept with our minds as well as our intellects the law of the conservation of reality, that when the past is changed, the future changes barely enough to adjust, barely enough to admit the new data. The change winds meet maximum resistance always. Otherwise the first operation in Babylonia would have wiped out New Orleans, Sheffield, Stuttgart, and Maud Davies' birthplace on Ganymede. Note how the gap left by Rome's collapse was filled by the imperialistic and Christianized Germans. Only an expert demon historian can tell the difference in most ages between the former Latin and the present Gothic Catholic Church. As you yourself, sir, said of Greece, it is as if an old melody were shifted into a slightly different key. In the wake of a big change, cultures and individuals are transposed. It's true. 
Yet in the main they continue much as they were, except for the usual scattering of unfortunate but statistically meaningless accidents. "'All right, you bloody savants! Maybe I pushed my point too far,' Bruce growled. "'But if you want variety, give a thought to the rotten methods we use in our wonderful change-war. Poisoning Churchill and Cleopatra, kidnapping Einstein when he's a baby—' "'The snakes did it first, I reminded him. "'Yes, and we copied them. How resourceful does that make us?' he retorted, arguing like a woman. "'If we need Einstein, why don't we resurrect him? Deal with him as a man!' Beau said, serving his culture in slightly thicker slices, "'Pardonnez-moi, but when you have enjoyed your status as a double-ganger, a sous-son longer, you will understand that great men can rarely be resurrected. Their beings are too crystallized, sir, their laugh-lands too tough.' "'Pardon me, but I think that's rot. I believe that most great men refuse to make the bargain with the snakes, or with us spiders, either. They scorn resurrection at the price demanded.' "'Brother, they ain't that great,' I whispered, while Beau glided on with, "'However that may be, you have accepted resurrection, sir, and so incurred an obligation which you as a gentleman must honour. "'I accepted resurrection all right.' Bruce said, a glare coming into his eyes. When they pulled me out of my line at Passchendaele in seventeen, ten minutes before I died, I grabbed at the offer of life like a drunkard grabs at a drink the morning after. But even then I thought I was also seizing a chance to undo historic wrongs, work for peace. His voice was getting wilder all the time. Just beyond our circle I noticed the new girl watching him worshipfully. But what did I find the spiders wanted me for? only to fight more wars, over and over again, make them crueler and stinkinger, cut the swath of death a little wider with each big change, work our way a little closer to the death of the cosmos." Sid touched my wrist, and as Bruce raved on he whispered to me, "'What kind of ball, think you, will please and so quench this fire-brained rogue? And you love me discover it.' I whispered back, without taking my eyes off Bruce either. I know somebody who'll be happy to put on any kind of ball he wants, if he'll just notice her. The new girl, sweetling. Tis well. This rogue speaks like an angry angel. It touches my heart, and I like it not." Bruce was saying hoarsely but loudly, "'And so we're sent on operations in the past, and from each of those operations the change winds blow futurewards, swiftly or slowly according to the opposition they breast sometimes rippling into each other, and any one of those winds may shift the date of our own death ahead of the date of our resurrection, so that in an instant, even here, outside the cosmos, we may moulder and rot, or crumble to dust and vanish away. The wind with our name in it may leak through the door." Faces hardened at that, because it's bad form to mention change-death, and Eric flared out with, "'Halt small, camarade! There's always another resurrection!' But Bruce didn't keep his mouth shut. He said, "'Is there? I know the spiders promise it, but even if they do go back and cut another double-ganger from my lifeline, is he me?' He slapped his chest with his bare hand. "'I don't think so. And even if he is me, with unbroken consciousness, why has he been resurrected again? Just to re-fight more wars, and face more change-death for the sake of an almighty power—his voice was rising to a climax—an almighty power so bloody ineffectual it can't furnish one poor soldier pulled out of the mud of Passchendaele, one miserable change-commando, one god-forsaken recuperee, a proper issue of equipment!" And he held out his bare right hand toward us, fingers spread a little, as if it were the most amazing object and most deserving of outraged sympathy in the whole world. 
The new girl's timing was perfect. She whisked through us, and before he could so much as wiggle the fingers, she whipped a black gauntleted glove on it, and anyone could see that it fitted his hand perfectly. This time our laughing beat the other. We collapsed and slopped our drinks and pounded each other on the back, and then started all over. Ach, der Hansuchlieben! Where'd she get it? Eric gasped in my ear. Probably just turned the other one inside out. That turns a left into a right. I've done it myself, I wheezed, collapsing again at the idea. That would put the lining outside, he objected. Then I don't know, I said. We got all sorts of junk in stores. It doesn't matter, Liebchen, he assured me. Ah, oh, der Handstruch! All through it, Bruce just stood there, admiring the glove, moving the fingers a little now and then, and the new girl stood watching him, as if he were eating a cake she'd baked. When the hysteria quieted down, he looked up at her with a big smile. What did you say your name was? Lily, she said. And believe you me, she was Lily to me even in my thoughts from then on, for the way she'd handled that lunatic. Lillian Foster, she explained. I'm English also. Mr. Marchant, I've read a young man's fancy I don't know how many times. You have? It's wretched stuff. From the Dark Ages. I mean, my Cambridge days. In the trenches I was working up some poems that were rather better. I won't hear you say that. But I'd be terribly thrilled to hear the new ones. Oh, Mr. Marchant, it was so strange to hear you call it Passchendaele. Why, if I may ask? Because that's the way I pronounce it to myself. But I looked it up, and it's more like Paskandala. Bless you. All the Tommies call it Passchendaele, just as they called Ypres Wipers. How interesting! You know, Mr. Marchant, I'll wager we were recruited in the same operation, summer of 1917. I had got to France as a Red Cross nurse, but they found out my age and were going to send me back. How old were you? Are you? Same thing, I mean to say. Seventeen. Seventeen and seventeen, Bruce murmured, his blue eyes glassy. It was real corny dialogue, and I couldn't resent the humorous leer Eric gave me as we listened to them, as if to say, Ain't it nice, Liebchen? Bruce has a silly little English schoolgirl to occupy him between operations. Just the same. As I watched Lily in her dark bangs and pearl necklace, and tight little grey dress that reached barely to her knees, and Bruce hulking over her tenderly in his snazzy hussar's rig, I knew that I was seeing the start of something that hadn't been part of me since Dave died, fighting Franco, years before I got on the big time. The sort of thing that almost made me wish there could be children in the change world. I wondered why I'd never thought of trying to work things so that Dave got resurrected. And I told myself, no. It's all changed. I've changed. Better the change winds don't disturb Dave, or I know about it." "'No, I didn't die in 1917. I was merely recruited then,' Lily was telling Bruce. "'I lived all through the twenties, as you can see from the way I dress. But let's not talk about that, shall we? Oh, Mr. Marchant, do you think you can possibly remember any of those poems you started in the trenches? I can't fancy them bettering your sonnet that concludes with, "'The bough swings in the wind, the night is deep. Look at the stars, poor little ape, and sleep." That one almost made me whoop. What monkeys we are, I thought. Though I'd be the first to admit that the best line to use on a poet is one of his own. In fact, as many as possible. I decided I could safely forget our little Britons and devote myself to Eric, or whatever needed me. End of chapter 2